just a message here. South, Al- South Auckland is totally gridlocked. I've moved 10 metres since my last text. Wallace Chapman and Dr. Ella Henry Stephen Franks joining us for their opinions, their views on today's panel. And we want your opinions as always. Text me 2101. To this first, Michael Woods has resigned. Michael Wood has resigned as a minister. Wood had further shares in Chorus, Spark and the National Australia Bank further to his Auckland Airport shares that have since been disclosed to Hipkins. This is what the Prime Minister had to say. Like many others, I found this episode deeply frustrating. While I've only been in this job for about five months, I've taken a number of steps to stop the kinds of behaviour that have not met acceptable standards. Minister, for whom it is an honour to have such a role, need to ensure they manage their affairs to the highest standards. And joining us on that is Dr. Bryce Edwards, lecturer in politics at Victoria University. Dr. Edwards, welcome. Sure, I was. So, yeah, Chris Hipkins said, would, as immigration minister, put telecommunications technicians on the immigration green list, a decision relevant to both Corus and Spark. Uh, I mean, how to view this, Bryce, an incredible lapse of judgment or something else? Well, the words that are appropriate in this case are conflicts of interest. And so, um, you know, and that relates to this idea of, you know, a system that doesn't have integrity, that is potential uh, corruption, people not serving the public interest, and no one that she's saying that he's done this. But it's clear that he hasn't followed the rules that are necessary to protect that integrity. So, um, <laughs> and there will be debate about whether... Uh, He's just been, uh, I guess, complacent, um, mm. lazy, <laughs> or or whether he's uh, been, uh, yeah, just a, a, a bit too arrogant and perhaps um, low ethical standards. I guess. Well, you could see it, couldn't you? You can see in the. Uh, I was watching the um, uh, the stand up with the prime minister, uh, and he he was clearly at a loss to explain what happened. I mean, what's your sense here? Oh, look, um, I I don't want to apologise for Michael Wood here, but in New Zealand we've become very complacent about these conflicts of interests and rules around integrity, and so I don't think Michael Wood is the only one. I just don't think that we've had systems in Parliament or at Cabinet level that have reinforced the need to follow all these rules. And so, in a sense, he was let down by Cabinet. Yes, you know, the Cabinet office kept on telling him he should be doing this, but, you know, the rules weren't, you know, particularly... Uh, they didn't have processes there for making sure that he actually did it. And so that's also no. really good that the Prime Minister has come out and, and brought in new processes that seem a bit more appropriate. Yes, we'll come to some of those. And I know that you've, uh, you, you, you've written quite a bit about conflicts of interest, which is why uh, you are here right now. Let's bring in yeah. our panel, their views, their thoughts, their questions. Ella? Well, I, I think that he was put in a position where there was no other course of action. It seems unfortunate. Um, it's certainly not looking good in this last period of time when uh, we're looking at the ethicality. And, and I guess that relates to what you were talking about, Stephen, before, you know, about the ethicality of people belong, belonging in politics and how it casts uh, and besmirches all of those around them. And, and I guess this is another classic example of that. Yeah, Bryce? 
Oh, look, absolutely. The the real loser in this is, I think, public confidence in uh, the political process, in politicians, and of course, you know, in the Michael Wood, um, you know, his downfall isn't the only one. You know, Ming Tsing earlier in the week, uh, and there's been lots of other questions raised. You know, obviously Stuart Nash, Jen Tanetti, uh, and previous years of these things happening as well. Um, Labor's going through a particular bad time at the moment, but it's happened under you know national governments as well. These sort of things. So I, I do think that public trust will be at a low point at the moment. If you could just turn your head slightly, Bryce, so we can get a slightly, we can hear, but just to get a slightly clearer right. line. Uh, Stephen, sure. let's bring you in. Uh, first, I have no confidence in this talk of new processes. It comes down to character, and I think it's absolutely nonsense to say uh, it's on both sides. There are bad eggs on both sides, but this has been a stream of... This is the man who attacked the protesters, the mandate protesters, as rivers of filth. This is the man who who held out himself as some sort of um, moral icon. And he was so, so privileged. He was such an insider that he thought the rules didn't apply to him. I mean, it's the same sort of thing that we saw with Boris Johnson and the, and the parties in breach of the rules that he'd imposed on the rest of the country. And my reading of our political culture now is that the biggest risk is it's full of young insiders, people who've got positions. They've never, ever demonstrated that they could build anything or create anything. They get positions because they're clever at working their way through the intricacies of, of tiny, uh, the tiny elite carters of people who run political parties now. So all this process stuff, you, you shouldn't need it. Uh, the okay. idea that he would just that he would be sitting on that knowledge and think he'd get away with it if he just brazened it out. What do you think, Bryce? Uh, oh, more look, so character than the rules here. I, I, you need both. You need good character in your politicians and you need the rules to catch the bad eggs. But uh, Stephen is quite correct that uh, there's an argument to be made, at least, that the ethical standing of politicians has declined over the years. And certainly the way the politicians... Has it, do you think? I, I think it probably has, in my view. The way the, the sort of politicians we elect these days, the whole political process is very different to what we had for most of the 20th century when we had mass political parties and we had people that came into politics after long careers as being you know, teachers or farmers and they'd come in with a sense of public duty to you know, change the world or keep the world the same or whatever, whereas now we have a lot more politicians that are career politicians. They come in after just you know a short time in student politics or working in the media or lobby groups, and they then expect to have um, politics as a career, and they have different motives, and I'm not sure they're there so much to serve the people. Okay, as well, Bryce, let's, see what Ella, let's bring Ella in. I think that that's a, there's an unfortunate truth to this that that we've turned um, politics as service of particularly in a democracy of service of the population to a career pathway and and I think we're seeing it much more that there are some politicians in in our government who've never had any other kind of job um, and right. maybe what we need to be thinking about is is what the criteria are for being able to put yourself forward for the uh, politics. Interesting, yeah. I see, Stephen, stay there, Bryce. So, Stephen, Cabinet Office to move to quarterly reporting of conflicts of interest sent to the Prime Minister. There'd also be 
in-person annual reviews with minister dis- ministers to discuss potential conflicts. Conflict disclosures will become a standing item of cabinet meetings. All those mean little to you? Yeah, they're, they're all just that normal process stuff that's burying the country. Um, the, the way that you ensure that character is rewarded is by making sure there are really serious sanctions and people are crooks. I mean, th- this wouldn't catch the fact that this minister has been using his powers to pressurise people into doing deals that will give send streams of income to unions. And, and the and the industry's concerned are too scared to speak up because he's got such powers, and the, that's 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 much more of a of a uh, an insidious conflict than whether he had some shares that probably don't return well, he, much. Here's another example: Michael Wood is a person of exemplary integrity and dedication. Says someone today is a sad loss. While he has clearly made a serious error, he is anything but self-interested. Uh, unlike those celebrating his resignation. That's another angle, Dr. Edwards, that um, some might have seen him as a, a, a person who could one day be uh, prime ministerial uh, material, a person who yeah. had a good career ahead of him. That's another view. Yes, well, Michael Wood was probably the next Labour Prime Minister, and um, he he came from the more left side of the Labour Party, if that means anything these days, and so I think he has a lot of support on the political left. He's seen as being a bit more of a, an old-school Labour politician, uh, close to the unions, uh, in favour of a bit more progress than perhaps people like uh, Hipkins or even uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, wanted to do in terms of a left-wing agenda. So I think he's going to be sorely missed by a lot on the left for those okay. reasons. All right, Dr Edwards, kia ora. Thank you for your time today. That's uh, Bryce Edwards there, lecturer in politics at Victoria University. Uh, your thoughts on that, his resignation and what Stephen and uh, Ella had to say. 16 pass for the panel. A radical overhaul is needed. That is the conclusion of the Future for Local Government report, the most significant report on local government that has been done since the 1989 reforms and 2002 Local Government Act. 17 big recommendations, just a few here. A unitary model, amalgamation of all councils in an area. A four-year local electoral term. Another one, adopting ranked voting New Zealand-wide, known as STV. Lowering the voting age to 16 and a suggestion of an annual transfer of central government funding to local government to be set initially at a billion dollars per annum. Let's bring in Dr Andy Asquith, adjunct research fellow at John Curtin Institute of Public Policy. This is in Australia. He's a local government expert. He lived in New Zealand for many years. Dr Asquith, welcome. Good afternoon, Wallace. How are you doing? Uh, very well, Andy. No secret that local government is stretched, really stretched. But some of these issues, Andy, they're long-standing, aren't they? They're long-standing, and it's about time someone paid attention to them, and I think the report is fantastic. Unfortunately, I don't think it will go very far. Oh, really? Let's, let's just take one that I'm interested in. I know that Stephen might have a view on this. Amalgamating regional and city council that sit within the same area, bringing them all in. Now, that will likely be very controversial. Incredibly controversial. And this is why I think it will fall over to start off with. I heard the minister this morning 
And I think he said that amalgamations wouldn't be forced. He wanted councils to come together and, and play nicely together and come up with a solution for each region. It won't happen. It hasn't happened before. Um, an amalgamation will mean that there are less councils, less mayors, less councillors, and turkeys don't vote for Christmas. <laughs> Ella. I agree. I mean, I had a look at the um, a report about electoral reforms, which said similar things, reducing the voting right. age, uh, longer terms, and they certainly provided a good rationale for that, which would hopefully increase civil participation, you know, voting, because that's it's at local government that we have the least civil participation. But I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how making smaller councils will give them greater capacity to deliver on the huge issues that councils are going to have to deliver as we move into a climate change era. Andy? I think the rationale for, for a smaller number of bigger councils is sensible in the sense that some of the challenges ahead mean that the smaller councils especially don't have the resource in terms of finance or personnel and they don't have the capacity to deal with some of the big issues. The problem with amalgamation is that what we find is the bigger the council, the lower the level of participation and engagement. Really? That's been replicated across New Zealand ever since I've been around New Zealand. Um, so, it was, okay. for example, Auckland. The voter turnout in Auckland is low 30s. It's, it's appalling. Some of the smaller councils on South Island have got turnout rates of over 60%. Yeah. All right, Stephen. Um, I'm just amazed at the lack of um, science or research in this report. And there's quite a lot of world um, study of this sort of thing. Uh, New Zealand's already at the concentrated end. We have uh, more but more voters per uh, councillor and per council than the average in the in the in the Western world. I mean, the probably people regard the the height of local democracy as probably Switzerland, uh, where it's at. Uh, at the um, village level, a whole lot of devolved power. This this is just full of slogans. It's just it's just a wish list of an elite that uh, think we should all pay attention to what they do and and lay out some desirable, some things we worry about and things we're desirable, and then as if they automatically okay. persuade us. Well, let's look at the straight facts, uh, Stephen. And one of the reasons why you brought it up is that um, many would say we're at peak rates. Something's got to be done. We can't getting, keep getting double-digit rate figures. Uh, local councils can't pay their way. They are struggling. And here is a once-in-a-generation report trying to get to grips with so, some of those fundamental issues. So what of these would you have? Well, the, the, what you have to pay depends on what it costs. And if you've got, mm. as I had up my road, up the, our farm road, if you have someone coming to clear the drains who has to set up um, 200 metres of cones and have a stop-go man at the each end of it and then a man on the machine and a man taking all the spoil away from a truck instead of just piling it as they used to beside the road, it's going to cost many times what we used to do that for 15 years ago where we would call the local district engineer and say, hey, it's blocked, we'll pop down with our digger and we'll clear it and we'll send you a photo and he'd pay us for a couple of hours' work. All over the country, 
New Zealand New Zealand's drilling New Zealand's drilling for that underground railway in Auckland is seven times the cost of what they do it for in Switzerland where their wages are really high we just have become insanely expensive is there some truth to this Andy or what do you think well, finance is the elephant in the room, isn't it, to a certain extent, because this has been around a long time. Nobody will mention that about 15 years ago, a guy called David Shand wrote a fantastic report on local government finance. It was presented to Helen Clark before she left office, and everyone forgot about it. And you know, we could start by going back to that. But if you're going to have local government that's going to work, then it needs to be properly financed. Okay, so on that and then, that let me means, let me ask. Local government oh, sorry, needs more money from the centre. Okay, so that's what the report suggests around the panel: a suggestion of an annual transfer of central government funding to local government to be set initially at a billion dollars per annum. Ella Henry. I mean, clearly there needs to be more um, investment available for some of the huge issues, especially in more rural, isolated areas where they don't have the ratepayer base. So we as a nation have to figure out how we're going to pay for what may be an onslaught of climate uh, consequences moving forward, as well as maintaining the infrastructure we've got. So if that has well-reasoned foundations. It can't be a bad thing. Stay there, Andy. Stephen Franks, an annual transfer of central government to local government to be initially set at a billion dollars a year. Would you agree with that? Well, it doesn't come from Father Christmas. It just comes out of taxes. And if if, if the spending is inefficient, it's not going to change. It just means someone else doesn't have to answer to their local ratepayers, but someone is then answering to Wellington and it's vulnerable to the sort of pressures Wellington will bring in. I mean, this, we haven't even touched the elephant in the room here. This thing is absolutely stuffed with this notion that local government is now a Tariti partner. That was expressly not the law after Lord Cook invented the partnership metaphor. And now it is. And a whole lot of these changes are to bring in unelected appointees in to settle on councils where people can't okay. exclude them. Just, uh, Andy... Very good to have you on, Andy Asquith. Do you want to respond to that? Do you want to respond to that, Ella? Um, well, I don't think that Stephen and I will ever agree mm. on this matter. So um, we could we could tie each other up in knots for the rest of the show. Um, you know, obviously, my view as a Maori is the reason we have a country is because Maori agreed for non-Maori to be here in return for certain guarantees, which have not been met over the last 183 years. So addressing those inequities of the past is how we need to move forward if we want to create a viable society, as far as I'm concerned. Kia ora both. Very good. All right, Stephen Franks and Ella Henry with me. That was Dr Andy Asquith, uh, a local government expert. It is 25 past for the panel. Always wonderful to have your views, your opinions here. You can just text me, 2101. Rua Pehu Alpine Lifts has officially been put into liquidation today. Its lawyer, David Fryer, said it was rare for a company to put itself into liquidation, but it was hopelessly insolvent and unable to pay its debts. The company, which was one of the central North Island's biggest employers, went into voluntary administration last year, owing $45 million, reports RNZ. With us is freelance journalist Nisha Bremner, who lives in the Rohe. It's nice to have you on, Nisha. How are you? 
Well, you know, a bit shell-shocked like everyone yeah. in the community, I think. Uh, well, first on that, when you talk to your local cafe, when you talk to your local um, B&B, uh, the people around you, what are they talking about? What are they saying? Well, one person said to me, and I quote, the volcano may have had a, may as well have erupted last night and wiped us out. And um, wow. that's the sentiment here because, you know, I've had text messages today from people saying, congratulations, $100,000 just got wiped off the value of your property. You know, like it's, it's stark here. I mean, there was an independent report done through um, last year. Um, RAL was responsible for 5% of jobs in the Ruapehu district, and that has a knock-on effect of um, 326 jobs in southern Ruapehu. And um, that's no joke in a community where, you know, 45% of the community lives in deprivation 10 and are amongst the 10% most deprived communities in New Zealand. You know, mm. 96 of the population lives in decile 6 or lower, and decile 6 is Awakuni, meaning it's the most well-off community in the district. And, you know, 19% of the population receives income support from government. And we have some of the highest youth unemployment in the country, and youth are the ones getting the jobs on that monga. Nisha, do, do you want to stay there? Uh, let's bring in Stephen first, because Stephen, as I understand it, you you're, you're a life ticket holder uh, in this uh, in this venture. Yeah, I was a school kid at, in Taihafi when we used to go up on working parties to build yeah. the Aukuni Mountain Road to oh. get up to the Tura Field. So I've been involved since I was about, I think, about thirteen when I first went up there with a shovel. Not not very usefully, as you can imagine, for a 13-year-old, but um, I've always felt a proprietary interest and got the life ticket only a few years ago, and uh, I'm very sad. I, I was on the board of Taroa Ski Field when it um, put the big lifts in, and I know very well how hard it is. Uh, I, I, I would have said to make a profit, but actually just not to make losses in ski fields, and it's something all around the world. Ski fields usually only make money if they have land that they can sell off because the uh, the actual operation of the lifts is extremely difficult because of the, the big staff and right. un- uneven, uneven um, income. Yeah. Stay there, Nisha. Let's bring an Ella in. Yes, I, I, I think that this is going to be a really tricky one because obviously Ruapehu and its environments has a strong involvement of iwi, the gifting of that land to become, you know, part of a national park network in the in the 19th century means that it's incredibly important. But I agree also that it's a source of such an important part of um, economic activity in the region. Mm. And I'd like to think that with some government support or some kind of other support that it can be maintained, it may have to be something slightly different, though. I mean, we're going to have, it looks like, less snow moving forward. The idea of a ski season may not be as robust as it was in the past. And as you said, Stephen, it's a very expensive activity. What else can we do? We be yeah. doing with this extraordinary taonga that we have? It's, it's actually most of the ones that have really rebounded have been because of mountain biking, and they're ideally yeah. suited for that. Um, it's in fact the summer season in some of the North American ski resorts is now bigger than the winter. Oh, that's interesting. And but unche- I don't know whether it's true, but I was told that uh, locally we wouldn't allow them to do mountain biking tracks. I mean, given the nature of that field, when you see it in summer, and I've been there summer and winter, of course, um, 
you would hardly find a mountain bike track if, if one was built because it's so rubbly and rocky and it changes every time there's been a big eruption. But you could have fantastic mountain biking there. And I, I hope the local iwi look at this and, and realise that the key to making it work will be summer operation as well as winter. Is that our hope, Anisha? Because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful summer spot as well. Yeah, because it's a fantastic spot all year round and there are all those other things taking in place. But as Stephen says, it's not appropriate on Turo to Mountain to uh, on the Turo side to mountain bike. I mean, you know, that's a quick trip to the hospital, which is four hours away. But the thing is, is that the Monga is also an ancestor. So those relationships are incredibly important with Iwi and Tuwharitoa has a big, is a, you know, is a key um you know, as a key funder, was a key funder of RAL. But, you know, I think the sentiment uh, in Ruapehu is that we do have all those other things in place for summer tourism and bike trails and local government doing a lot through um, programs such as MERS Task Force for Jobs and bike trails to diversify the economic profile, which businesses in National Park really strongly support. There are a lot of rumblings coming out of there to do yeah, that, that. because That's not going to help the, the, the lift company. It needs, it needs to have people going up, yeah. and it needs to have them going up repeatedly. And that's oh, what, and that's what that's bike, bikes do. Bikes are, the bike yeah. parks in, in, in North America in particular uh, have just yeah. become fantastic at that. Now, uh, Nisha, uh, we'll have to leave it there. We might bring you back, though, because it's a really interesting story and it's really um, shaken the whole uh, region. I, I appreciate that. So um, for now, thank you for being with us. You're that's, welcome. Yeah, that's freelance journalist Nisha Bruner. I just wanted to get to this because the U.S. Coast Guard uh, Northeast, this is from the wires, Canadian aircraft have detected underwater noises in the search area for the submersible. Search has yielded negative results but continues. So Canadian aircraft have detected underwater noises in search area for the submersible. You are on the panel, RNZ National. We have Dr. Ella Henry with us this afternoon and Stephen Franks. It is... Time for headlines.